Well, we took a seven or eight month break from Isaiah, and I'm excited to enter this portion of Isaiah beginning in chapter 49, in which we're prophetically introduced uh, in a very formal sense to the one that this section calls the servant. And this servant is, of course, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. But before we really uh, dive into this text, we've been months out of Isaiah, and it's a massive book. There's uh, 66 chapters, and we have that slide. Did I give you that slide? It's up there? Okay. So you can, you can look at this. Let me just kind of re, revisit what Isaiah is about. It is divided into two major parts, uh, chapters 1 through 39, Uh, deal with the time in Isaiah's day when he was writing. Chapters 40 through 66 deal with a future day. Chapters 1 through 39 are primarily about uh, judgment with future hope, and the the, the second half of the book is more about future hope and salvation. And we see at the beginning that the the main uh, people that are we're concerned with are the Assyrians in the second part of the book, beginning in chapter 40, we're concerned with the Babylonians. And so, um, in fact, some scholars have even felt that this is two separate books put together. I wouldn't go that far. But there's definitely two different sections here. The end of chapter 39 ends with judgment, ends with hopelessness, ends with King Hezekiah having just received an oracle, oracle from the Lord that judgment's going to come on his house after his days, and he selfishly says, well, at least it won't happen while I'm alive. And that's how we end that section. And then we begin in chapter 40 with comfort, comfort my people. And now Isaiah is writing really to a future generation, to a generation yet to be taken into exile before the nation of Babylon had even risen. And so chapters 1 through 39, we have in Isaiah's day is his concern. Of course, he ministered over 60 years, so his day was extensive. But then in that last section that we now find ourselves in, it is Isaiah uh, looking to the future. And you can see that that last section is divided really into to three major parts of nine chapters each, 40 through 48, 49 through 57, and 58 through 66. And we're beginning that second of the three sections, 49 through 57, and it really concerns this itself with the servant. And this is why many have called Isaiah the gospel according to Isaiah, because Christ is more clearly seen in Isaiah than probably any other Old Testament book. And so we have here, beginning in chapter 49, the main character is the servant, who we know with our New Testament eyes is the Lord Jesus Christ. But interwoven with this main character, we see also God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the nations. Now, before we get to this, because it's very very eschatological, it's very end times oriented, I want to make a few notes about how you interpret Scripture when we're thinking about the end times. We take the view that Israel as a literal nation will be restored with real borders, real land, real uh, national entity. A remnant will be saved, and ultimately they will become, uh, that will become Christ's headquarters on earth. But I have to tell you this, that is the minority view among all those who believe a reformed soteriology. Um, many in the Reformed camp, and we would count ourselves as those, many in the Reformed camp believe that God's pro, pro, program is primarily soteriological. 
that God's program is primarily about salvation. We don't take that view. We take the view that God's program is primarily doxological. It is about the glory of God. And the soteriology, the salvation of mankind, is part of the glory of God, but that's not the whole plan. It is all about God's glory. And so, just so you know, uh, the belief that Israel will be restored as a literal nation, that is the minority view among those who are Reformed. That puts us in the camp of what some call uh, dispensationalists. Now, the, the history of dispensationalism has its own problems. It's come a long way. But we also have to note something. Our view of Israel, our view of the church, is not based on presuppositions. It's not based on theological assumptions. They're arrived at through a set of hermeneutical principles, Bible study principles. The noted covenant theologian and end times writer by the name of Cornelius Venema, and he's done some outstanding work for the church. He loves the Lord, but we would differ with him on some interpretation principles. He writes about how dispensationalists interpret prophecy. And here's what he writes. He says, Dispensationalism would collapse as a method of reading Bible prophecies were it shown that the promises made to Israel in the Old Covenant find their true and final fulfillment in the New Covenant church. First of all, we don't, we don't take the idea that the promises to Israel are fulfilled in the church. But I want you to know this, that this is what many in that camp don't understand and don't grasp. We don't view dispensationalism as a method for reading prophecy. Dispensationalism is the result of letting Scripture speak for itself. And so that's something that, that we'll probably disagree on all the way to heaven, and that's fine. But we don't take a set of lenses to Scripture. We take a set of rules for interpreting Scripture to Scripture. And so we hold tightly to a historical grammatical hermeneutic. And by the way, in today's culture, today, the battle for hermeneutics is raging. There are all kinds of new ideas about how the Scripture ought to be interpreted. So we're going to hold the line and hold to a historical grammatical hermeneutic. And I just want to give you a very brief overview. If you were in Bible Training Institute this morning, this is your second time in 12 hours to hear this. First of all, passages to be interpreted in their historical context. What was the intent to the original reader? And so for Isaiah 49, who is the intended original reader? The intended original reader is an exile in Babylon to receive comfort and encouragement. We also hold to a literal understanding that you understand the text in its normal, natural sense unless there's a clear reason given to you not to do so. The Bible does use figures of speech and symbolism to convey literal truth, but generally speaking, the Bible speaks in literal terms and should be allowed to speak for itself. It should be given its own voice. In other words, you have to have a reason to say something is symbolic. The best reason you can give something as being symbolic is that the Scripture gives its own commentary and says this is symbolic. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is pictured as the one who walks among the seven stars. And right there in the text, it says, and the seven stars are the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And so we, we get the best reason to understand something symbolic is because the Bible says so. The second best reason, though, is because if it were literal, it would be ridiculous. It would be impossible. The trees of the field clap their hands. Clearly a metaphor, clearly a symbol. But you can't just say, I've decided something is symbolic because you think that fits your theological framework. 
We assume literal unless the text gives us a reason not to assume that. We also hold to the idea that grammar and syntax matter. Grammar is how individual words are used. Syntax is how they're used together in groups. That matters. It makes a difference. I mean, even this morning, we looked at a passage in John chapter 7 where the, the absence or the presence of a period in Greek made a difference as to how we interpret the text. We also hold to a principle we call the analogy of the faith or sometimes called the synthetic principle. This means that Scripture is its own interpreter. The, the Bible doesn't contradict itself, and Scripture interprets Scripture when compared with Scripture. In fact, Cornelius Venema, he does an evaluation of premillennialism, the idea that Christ will return and then establish his thousand-year reign. And he, he disagrees with that position, and that's totally fine. But he says this about us, about you. Two biblical passages often cited in support of a premillennial return of Christ are 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26, and Revelation 21 through 6. The latter is the more important passage because without its teaching, some premillennialists acknowledge that 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 26 would not obviously suggest a return of Christ before the millennium. Well, what's the obvious problem with that? That's like saying, yes, I admit that without the New Testament, the Old Testament is harder to understand. He says, we admit, we, we condescend to say, if we didn't have Revelation 20, 1 Corinthians 15 wouldn't make sense. What's the problem with that? We have Revelation 20. It's there. And so we do have this text, and we're able to more accurately interpret 1 Corinthians 15 because Revelation 20 is a commentary on 1 Corinthians 15. And that brings us to the next principle we call the clarity of Scripture the clarity of Scripture that God intended Scripture to be understood, but not every passage is equally clear. And so you interpret the less clear passages with the more clear passages. Revelation 20 is the more clear passage, therefore you interpret 1 Corinthians 15 as the less clear passage, and it works. And the final principle we would say we stick to is authorial intent. What did the author intend? What was the purpose of the book? And that really does about half of your interpretive work for you right there. And so I've titled this series, we're beginning tonight, God's Plan for Israel and the Nations, and we're not approaching Isaiah 49 through 57 with the presupposition that our ideas will be confirmed. We simply want to let the text speak. What was Isaiah's intention? What did this mean to the original reader? What does the grammar and the syntax reveal? What's the most normal and observable meaning of the text? If something is symbolic, does the text give us a reason to make it symbolic? And if it doesn't seem clear, what other texts can we use to clarify our understanding? So now we have the hermeneutical basis. We want to understand we're not just making things up. We're letting the text speak for itself. Now, that being said, what we have in Isaiah 49, 1 through 13, what we'll look at this evening, is the introduction to the servant of God, Jesus Christ. And I want to remind you that the background of this section is in the context of Isaiah's overall purpose, beginning in chapter 40, which is to give comfort to the exiled Jews who are, who are in Babylon. Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And Isaiah is writing prophetically 150 years before these people. And so they'll take this text and receive great comfort from it. But Isaiah 49 isn't just our formal introduction to the servant of God, to the Messiah. 
But what I love about this text is that the servant of God, the Messiah, is himself the narrator. He is the speaker in this section. We hear the words of Christ here in Isaiah. And so in our beginning look at God's plan for Israel and the nations, kind of our first installment here, we're just going to look at two things this evening. First of all, the mission of the servant, and we'll spend most of our time on that. And then we'll give some notes on the triumph of the servant, the mission of the servant and the triumph of the servant. First of all, let's look at the mission of the servant. Isaiah 41, 49 rather, verse 1 Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. And we'll just stop there for a moment. The servant introduces himself, interestingly, by calling out to the coastlands, literally in Hebrew, the islands, the farthest places you can think of. Who is he calling to? He's calling to the Gentiles. He's calling to the nations. He begins this section calling the whole world, and he calls them to listen. This is the mark of a prophet of God, a, a call to listen. And I think it's interesting that when he says, listen to me, that exact phrase is used six times in Isaiah, and it's always the Lord, it is always Yahweh speaking. And so as we put together who this is in this passage, we actually can begin to have a small theology of the Trinity. We see God speaking in the person of Messiah, in the person of the servant. Now, how is it that the servant addresses the nations as only the Lord can address the nations? Is there some special relationship the servant has to Yahweh? Yes, there is. And here it is in the second half of verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. The servant was given his mission even from the womb of his mother, he was named while still in the womb. This is the Messiah of Scripture. And by the way, it's, it's not unusual throughout the Bible to mention Messiah's mother. With our New Testament understanding, we understand this to be Mary. Isaiah 7.14 mentions Messiah's mother. Genesis 3.15 indirectly mentions the mother of Messiah. Psalm 22, verse 10, Messiah proclaims prophetically, quote, from my mother's womb, you have been my God. And so this is not unusual for Messiah to mention his mother. Why is this? Because he's emphasizing that he is human, that he is a man. He is God. He is human. And in this context, from the body of my mother, he named my name. What is the name God gave to the servant? Skip down to verse 3 for a moment. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now, most of the time in Isaiah, when God says Israel, he means the nation of Israel. But in this particular case, God can't be speaking to the nation since this person named Israel is the one who will save the nation named Israel in verse 5. And so what's the significance of God naming the servant Israel? Well, a couple of things to understand here. First of all, this fits the pattern of Scripture. Remember that Israel was the name of a person before it was ever the name of a nation. God renamed Jacob Israel, from whom the whole nation of Israel then would come through his sons. And so this is the pattern. You name an individual Israel, and then you name an entire nation Israel after him. There's a second aspect to this, though. When Jacob received that name in Genesis 39, when God renamed him and said, you will be Israel, it was when God was giving him both the blessing and the responsibility to carry on the promises that had been made to his grandfather Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. 
And what was Jacob's responsibility? What did God tell him to do? He said, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, Jacob, it's your job to make the nation. Make it happen. What would be the servant's responsibility? Well, later on in Isaiah chapter 53, 10 and 11 says that the servant will see many offspring, that all those who are accounted righteous because of a sacrifice for their sins. So the responsibility of this servant Israel is to make the nation with spiritual children, to save many kingdom citizens. And one other thing to think about here. Remember that Isaiah is writing to the exiles in Babylon. The nation of Israel as a nation has failed. They are completely destitute. They have not lived up to what it means to be the chosen nation of God. They have not lived up to their purpose statement in Exodus 19, where they're called to be priests in the world, to be God's representatives on the earth. They've failed utterly at that. And so the servant here takes the lead. He's stepping in as the worthy and righteous Israel. Why? Verse 5, that Israel as a nation might be gathered back to him. And so for a time, the, the servant Israel represents new hope for the nation of Israel. And what is this servant going to be like? What will he be like? First of all, he is the glory of God revealed. He is the glory of God revealed, verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. This isn't the usual word for glorified. This is one that means in whom my beauty will be displayed. That all the glory, all the beauty, all the majesty, all the delights of God will be displayed in the servant. That the splendor of the unapproachable Yahweh are made visible, made manifest in the person of the servant. That if you want to see God, you must see the servant. And our New Testament minds are immediately going to John 14 where Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Very clear consistency. He is the glory of God revealed. But second, he's also the wrath of God revealed. He is the wrath of God revealed. The beginning of verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. This is a general picture of the judgment of God and a specific picture of Messiah is the instrument of the judgment of God. And this is a very familiar metaphor to us here. This is obviously a symbol because it would be impossible. It's it's ridiculous for it to be literal. But it is the idea that out of the mouth of the servant comes a sharp sword, which means what? It means that his words have destructive power. And this is a very, uh, very popular symbol in Scripture. Isaiah 11.4 says that Messiah will, quote, strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Hosea 6.5 says, quote, I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Revelation 1.16 describes Jesus Christ as, as the one from whose mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. Revelation 2.12 begins the letter of Jesus to the church at Pergamum, quote, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And then at the end of the Bible, Revelation 19.15 says of Messiah as he's returning, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. So there's no lack of clarity as to who this is. He is the glory of God revealed. He is the wrath of God revealed. He is also the sovereignty of God revealed. He's the sovereignty of God revealed. Later in verse 2, he has made me a polished arrow. A polished arrow. 
Now, an iron arrowhead was polished so that it didn't deviate in its course. They didn't have a great understanding of aerodynamics, but they understood this, that an iron arrowhead with lots of dirt on it went crooked. It didn't hit its mark. And so this is an arrow that will fly perfectly straight. It'll never go off target. The sword is meant for winning victories up close, and the arrow is meant for defeating a distant target. And because it's a polished arrow, this arrow will always fly straight, always fly true. Every single wicked thought and deed by men is known and will be dealt with. God is sovereign over the affairs of mankind and all sin will be recompensed. Nothing will slip under God's radar. You might slip under humanity's radar. You might trick everyone for your lifetime, but the arrow will fly straight and sure. A human being might think that she can run from God's justice. She might think that she can do so successfully for a lifetime. But as she runs away from righteousness toward the end of her life, that arrow has been in the air the whole time. And at the end of her life, the arrow will strike her and judge her. You will never get away. The arrow will find its mark. The servant is the glory of God revealed. He's the wrath of God revealed. He's the sovereignty of God revealed. But he's also the grace of God revealed. He's the grace of God revealed. We speak of the sword. We speak of the arrow. But for now, what has God done with the arrow? What has he done with the servant? Verse 2, the second phrase, In the shadow of his hand he hid me. The last phrase, In his quiver he hid me away. This shows a very intimate relationship between God the Son and God the Father. But more importantly, in this, the, the second half of the verse in which the, the servant is pictured as a polished arrow, the servant as eventual judge is hidden away, so to speak. How is he hidden away? Well, first of all, from verse 1, he's hidden away in the womb of his mother. The one who is the sword, who is the arrow, who is the instrument of the judgment of God is hidden away into a little tiny place, a little warm place, and he begins his life on this earth as a human the size of a pinhead. He's hidden away. Nobody would know that he's the judge of the universe. But is he hidden away now? To a certain degree, yes. Where is Christ? He is hidden away in heaven, as it were. He is at the right hand of the Father, and he is awaiting his return. Jesus wouldn't come to the earth first as judge, although the earth deserves his judgment. He came offering salvation and mercy and grace. He's being reserved. He's being held back. He's being kept for a future day. And until that day, the grace of God goes forth through the preached word of God. And instead of ending everything in fiery judgment as we deserve at this moment, God continues to add citizens to his kingdom day by day by day by day. We see this picture of coming judgment by sword and by arrow in Psalm 7, verse 12. That if a man does not repent, God will whet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. This is a picture of God sharpening his sword. This is a picture of the bow of God bent. It's creaking. It's strained, ready to release. The sword and the arrow, both are Christ. But he holds on. He doesn't let go. What is he waiting for? He's waiting for a man to repent. Grace, grace, grace. Every time you say, why is God waiting? The world is in such bad shape. Because more people are yet to be saved. 
But this servant isn't just some supernatural, ethereal reflection of God. He's not just a portrait beheld by those who can't approach him, can't relate to him, can't speak to him, can't be around him. He may be the glory of God revealed. He may be the wrath of God revealed. He may be the sovereignty of God revealed. He may be the grace of God revealed. But all that can still be ethereal. It can be far away. But the servant is called a servant, not just because he's willingly and lovingly doing the bidding of his father. He's called the servant because in revealing the glory of God, the wrath of God, the grace of God, the sovereignty of God, he would come as a human being. And we see his humanity completely without sin and yet complete with frailty, human weakness as it were, in verse 4. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. The servant is expressing despondency, despair almost, because although every effort has been made, on the surface it appears that nothing has been achieved. Nobody has followed. Doesn't that just describe perfectly the ministry of Christ on earth? And we can see that just knowing the Gospels. He did countless miracles. He did more miracles than Moses and Elijah put together. He did miracles no one had ever seen or were incredibly rare. He healed the blind, the deaf. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. And all the while preaching a a crystal clear gospel message, repent. I mean, how clear can you be? He expressed his love, his affection for Israel. He literally wept over Jerusalem. But they murdered him. And how does the ministry of Jesus end? It ends with his death. And it ends with false accusations that the disciples had stolen his body. Matthew 28 tells us this. It ends with a a quiet, unknown ministry to his disciples. And it it ends with, uh, this is unfathomable. The man who had healed thousands of people, fed tens of thousands of people, his time on earth ends with 11 guys seeing him ascend into heaven. How anticlimactic. After ministering to people by the tens of thousands, he departed this earth with 11 men watching. Jesus demonstrated his humanity when he obeyed his parents as a child, when he fell asleep in utter exhaustion, when he needed food to eat and water to drink, when he cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane to his father for strength for the coming trial and torture and execution, when he lovingly cared for his own mother, even from the cross, When he made breakfast for his disciples after the resurrection, who knew that Jesus could cook? He can do it all. And here he demonstrates his humanity by pouring out his heart to the Father, that all his work seems to have been in vain. Israel didn't repent. His efforts seem to be pointless, but there is here in the text a beautiful conjunction, a beautiful transition word. This isn't the end of the thought. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. In the verse 4. What a beautiful turn of the phrase. In his humanity, the servant won't be the one to decide what he does or doesn't deserve. He won't make that choice. He won't decide the rewards for his efforts. He rests completely in the wisdom of God and entrusts his ultimate recompense and reward to the hands of his father. And this is the exact dynamic that we see played out in Philippians 2 that Darren read a moment ago. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of what? A servant. 
Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, period. A bitter end to a seemingly pointless ministry. Of course, Paul continues, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. This is Jesus taking steps all the way down to the grave and steps all the way up to ultimate exaltation. Now, after this description of the servant, we really begin now to get to the mission of Christ, the mission of the servant. And the servant continues narrating for us. In verse 5, he says, And now the Lord says. But before he tells us what Yahweh says... He gives a parenthesis, a qualifying statement. This is all of verse 5 as a, a qualifying statement. And now the Lord says, he interrupts himself, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says. So we have to deal with this interruption here. What is the first and initial mission of the servant? It is to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. Now, this can't be speaking of Israel now represented in the church. Jacob is often used in the Old Testament to make sure we know that the writer is speaking of ethnic Jews, people descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's being very clear with this. Even right now, Israel as a nation is under the blinding judgment of God, except for the occasional Jews saved by grace. Here during the church age, Jews as a whole abhor the idea of Jesus as Messiah, and even Orthodox Jews, they continue waiting for Messiah. They're 2,000 years too late. But the initial and the first mission of Christ is to bring her back, bring God's beloved nation back. And I want you to notice something here. There's no sense of a complete eradication of the nation of Israel. There's no sense of replacing Israel with the church or of just inculcating all peoples together into one generic people of God without any recognizable origins. Instead, the servant acknowledges that in being given the mission to bring Israel back to the Lord, he is honored, literally glorified in the eyes of Yahweh, and God will give him the strength to accomplish this great task. And I want to just kind of deviate here for a moment and help you understand that the mission of the servant to get Israel back, this has always been his mission. All of the Old Testament appearances of the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, they're always pro-Israel. They're always to keep Israel, to get Israel back on track, to discipline Israel, to save Israel. The angel of the Lord appeared to Hagar, the servant of Sarah, because he would preserve people who would come from the seed of Abraham. Even though Ishmael was an an unchosen son, he still cared about the descendants of Abraham because that's what he was protecting. The angel of the Lord appeared to Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 19, long enough for Abraham to feed him a meal, to tell him that he would have a son in his old age who would be Isaac and who would be the father of whom? The people of Israel. The angel of the Lord spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22 to keep Abraham from sacrificing Isaac because the nation of Israel would come from Isaac. The angel of the Lord appeared to Moses to commission him 
to save Israel from captivity in Egypt. The angel of the Lord appeared to Balaam, the false prophet, in protection of whom? Israel. The angel of the Lord addressed the entire nation of Israel. You may not remember this. Judges 2, verse 1. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. In protection of whom? Israel. The angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon in Judges 6 to commission him to save Israel from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to a man and a woman who had become the parents of Samson to save Israel from Philistine oppression. The angel of the Lord was also the instrument of severe discipline in Israel because of David's sin in 2 Samuel 24. Why? Because the Lord disciplines those whom he, what? Loves. The angel of the Lord commissioned and encouraged the ministry of Elijah to stand up for righteousness where? In Israel. The angel of the Lord strengthened and fed Elijah when he was so discouraged in ministry that he, he didn't want to live anymore. And he, he told him, there are still 7,000 faithful in the nation of Israel. And the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians who had laid siege to Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. The servant has always been pro-Israel. The servant has always been looking out for the nation. The servant who is appointed for the love and protection of Israel has been doing this job since Genesis 16. And the ultimate way he's done this job is to come to earth as a man, to be the sacrifice for the sins of all who would believe in him, to be the instrument of forgiveness for the very people who would murder him. So the first and initial mission of the servant is bring Jacob back. Now, picture yourself in exile in Babylon, and you're reading this. This is exciting. This is encouraging that that God is going to send someone to bring Jacob back. Now, if you lived long enough to be part of the exile, you would probably think that the servant being sent is a guy named Cyrus, sent to free Israel and send them back. And you wouldn't be incorrect in believing that. But as we talked about in in Bible Training Institute this morning, that very often when the Lord gives a prophecy, there's a near version and a farther version. We wouldn't take chapter 49 as being related to Cyrus, but probably the, the Jew in exile would say, this is related to me now that God is going to free us. And whoever is the guy who frees us, that's the one I'm going to think is the servant. But they, they couldn't grasp yet the larger scope of what God was really talking about. He's not just about bringing that generation back from exile, but of saving the nation for all time. And that'll be revealed more and more as we go through Isaiah. Verse 5, now the Lord says, and then he interrupts himself, but what does he say? Is this enough? Is that mission alone worthy of the glory of the servant? No, it's not. In verse 5, the servant began, Now the Lord says, he interrupts himself in the rest of verse 5, and now he says what the Father has said to him. Verse 6, he says, this is Yahweh speaking to the servant, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. It is too light a thing. It's it's a word that means it's small. It's, It's little. It's not big enough for you. It doesn't fit your glory. You shouldn't just be the king of the nation. You should be the king of the world. 
The servant would receive glory by being the savior of Israel. But now we get to the reason that the servant began chapter 49 addressing the whole world because it's relevant to them, relevant to us. Not only will be the, ser- the servant be the savior of Israel, but the servant will be the light for all the nations. And notice here that God makes a distinction. You will save Israel and you will save the nations. He draws a distinction. All who are saved will be saved by the blood of, of the cross, by the forgiveness freely offered by Christ. But we don't want to make the mistake of trying to oversimplify the plan of God by trying to make it fit our palatable terms. God is, that is true, saving one people. We call them in Scripture the elect. And the elect are made up of Jews and Gentiles, a distinction which will go on into eternity, by the way. Revelation 22, verse 2 records that in the final state on the new earth in New Jerusalem, the nations are still distinct groups all to the glory of a creative God. And Israel certainly isn't just inculcated into the church, isn't just mashed into the church or the church mashed into Israel. There is a distinction and it continues. In fact, in the New Jerusalem, the city itself has 12 gates, each of them named for the tribes of Israel. And the city has 12 foundations inscribed with the 12 apostles, the Jews who carried the gospel to the Gentiles. So that distinction remains all to the glory of God. Remember when you were a kid and you got that box of Crayolas and if you were really lucky, you got the 64 one? If you were poor, you just got the eight and the kid with the 64, was you were really jealous of him? Well, what did all the girls do? The girls picked each color, and they colored with each one individually. What did the boys do? Let's see if we can make black. And they would just color it all together to make one simple black hole on a piece of paper. Why would we take all the colors of the redemptive plan of God and try to color them all together just to make one big blob? Let red be red. Let green be green. Let yellow be yellow. Let the Jews be saved into a glorious new nation that was what God always intended and let the Gentiles glory in the salvation of Israel and share in their glory and share in their blessings. Why mix the colors? Let it be okay. So what is the mission of Christ? It is to save Israel, to save the nations. But will he succeed? That brings us to the triumph of Christ and we'll speed this up a little bit. The triumph of Christ, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Now I want you to notice there's two groups mentioned here. The servant is the Redeemer of Israel, and he would redeem Israel by being the one who's despised and rejected. I mean, the irony of this is just infinite that he saves Israel by letting Israel murder him. But then he says, kings shall see in their eyes. And I want you to notice this. The nations who formerly formerly oppressed Israel will bow down before Israel. They will love Israel. They will acknowledge Israel. Now, obviously, that hasn't happened yet. But we will see in the coming weeks that the saved Gentiles of the millennial kingdom will adore, they will cherish, they will love the saved Jews. And now God turns his affectionate promises to Israel. Verse 8. 
Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages. Say to the prisoners, come out. To those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road. And my highways shall be raised up. Now, picture yourself as an exile in Babylon. And you're facing a 900-mile trip home. How encouraging is this? The sun won't beat down on me. The paths will be straight. They'll be safe. There won't be bandits. There won't be robbers. There'll be water along the way. There'll be food along the way. How encouraging to them. There's no reason here to make these pictures a a metaphor or, or a symbol. It's very reasonable that God would literally provide food and springs of water for the return of the exiles. And so this would greatly encourage the exiles who are in the east in the 6th century B.C. But then we get a prophetic curveball thrown in here. Look at verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar. That's right, we're coming from Babylon. And behold, these from the north. Wait a minute, we're at the east. And from the west. No, we're at the east. And these from the land of Syene. Wait a minute. God isn't just talking about regathering Israel from Babylon. He's talking about the whole world from the north, from the west, from Syene. Syene, many feel that this is speaking of a, a region in Egypt, exactly the opposite direction from Babylon. There's actually a very long standing interpretation that connects Syene with China. It doesn't matter which one it is, wherever Syene is, it's not Babylon. So God is promising to bring his faithful back together at some future point. He'll provide for them on the way. And by the way, as we go farther through Isaiah, we get more and more details about how God provides for them. Where are they coming from? Well, Isaiah has already told us where they'll come from. Isaiah 11, beginning in verse 11, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathras, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Chapter 43, beginning in verse 5, Isaiah says, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. When will that regathering take place? It will take place at the end of the great tribulation when Christ returns. During the Great Tribulation, even the believing Jews in Israel and Jerusalem will be scattered. They'll have to run for their lives. In Matthew 24, beginning in verse 15, Jesus says that when you see the abomination of desolation is spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that is the Antichrist, quote, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Revelation 12, verse 6 says that Israel will flee, quote, into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished. For 1,260 days, three and a half years, believing Jews and perhaps even those elect Jews yet to be saved will be protected and hidden by God for the last half of the tribulation period. And then when Jesus comes and conquers the enemies of Israel, he promises in Matthew twenty four thirty one. 
And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Don't misinterpret that. That is not the rapture of the church. That happened seven years earlier. This is the gathering of his people together. Now, remember, we take a literal view of the text unless the text demands that we don't. Earlier in our text, the servant is said to be a sword and an arrow. These are obvious metaphors because it would be ridiculous for them to be literal. But is it ridiculous for God to literally gather Jews? Of course not. Not at all. Why shouldn't we believe that God will redeem Israel as a nation? Why shouldn't we believe that he'll regather them? He's already done it twice. He saved them from Egypt. Now, let's stop for a moment, and let's be a futuristic, eschatological theologian Jew in Egypt. And you're preaching. You know, here's what I think God is going to do. He's going to save the nation, and we're going to head right toward the Red Sea. And what God is going to do is he's going to part those waters, and we're going to walk through on dry land, and then God is going to kill the entire army of Pharaoh. I think that's what's going to happen. What would everybody say? You're crazy. God could never do that. How about Babylon? Let's say that you're an eschatological theologian in Babylon. Here's what I think God is going to do. The nation of Babylon, which is the most powerful empire on earth, there's going to be this guy named Cyrus, and he's going to come, and he's going to conquer Babylon with the Medo-Persian peoples, and he's going to take over. And as soon as he gets here, he's going to say to all the nations that have been captive by Babylon, all of you can go back to your various places because I'm a nice guy. Nobody would believe that. How many times has God rescued Israel? Twice. Those were just encouragements. That if God did it twice, he can do it a third time. And this time when he opens the eyes of the nation as they behold Christ, Zechariah 12.10, as they repent, they will stay gathered and they will stay under the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. Why? Because the servant will be with them. By the way, One facet, one principle of end-time study is to understand that when you go to be with Christ and when Christ is united to you, he never leaves you again. Rapture of the church, we go to Christ. When he returns, we come with him. We're always with him. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, and so we will always be with the Lord. And Isaiah ends this section with a doxology an exclamation of praise for God's redemption and the keeping of his promises to Abraham. He says in verse 13, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Israel will need faith to believe in her Messiah, to believe in the servant, and that's what God will address in the next section. So we'll do that next time. Our Father, thank you so much for this clear plan. And we take such comfort from your faithfulness to Israel because that gives us a model, an example, a sample to believe in your faithfulness to us. That when Christ said that he would never let one of his children go and that the the Father would never allow one of us to escape your hand, we can look at the nation of Israel and see how diligently The servant clings to his commitment to save his people. And so we take comfort in that. We take great joy in the doctrine of assurance of salvation. 
and that those that are your children are guaranteed a future inheritance, so much so that you've given us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, as a down payment to prove your promise is true. Lord, it's my prayer that as we've looked at just the beginning of this section of God's plan for Israel and the nations, that we would be excited about the future and that these prophecies would provide us with hope and comfort and calm and joy and even the means to share the gospel with the lost because all people will face you and all people have their own personal end times theology. And if it is wrong, they will die in their sin. But if it is right, which is to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant, the Messiah, to be their Savior, to be their Lord, then they will enjoy all the blessings that you will give to Israel, all the blessings that you will give to the church, both now and in the age to come. And that is our hope, and that is our prayer. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.